Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church family. A pleasure again to be with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity that Pastor Ronald has um, given me to uh, be part of the teaching team from now and then. Uh, A great opportunity to open God's word with you. But I feel it's important as we turn to John chapter 2 that we turn one more time to the Lord about those pressing needs in our world. Ukraine is invaded. Um, They wonder this morning whether or not they will be a free nation or a nation in bondage to another nation. Uh, We're going to be reading a chapter in which this nation is in bondage. Uh, Rome is in charge of Israel in the time of Christ. Um, You folks know what conflict is all about. Some of you have firsthand tasted civil war or a war that was tearing your own nation apart. And it just is, it propels us into the presence of Christ to pray for others that God would give mercy and, le- and wisdom to the leaders of our world. Father, as, as I've said these things to, uh, to, we've said these things to each other as we've had conversations through the week, what is going to happen? What is going on in Ukraine? For a moment, we just pause and realize that this is a nation that has been sovereign and led itself for many years and now they have been invaded by a neighboring nation. Uh, Aggression is being demonstrated, death is in the streets. People are uncertain about their future. They're taking up arms to defend themselves and repel the invaders. They're all crying out to you, O God, for those who know you will seek your leadership in their lives. But we, as we gaze upon this, are asking that you would give mercy that you would give strength, that you would give solidarity to nations who have promised to support each other, that they would live up to their covenants, their agreements, um, their alliances, so that nations that are interdependent might lean on one another and be able to live in the freedom we all prize. Lord, we know that you are the one that establishes the boundaries of nations, We know that your own people, as we read the account in Scripture, whom you call your own and who you call by your name, uh, were victimized, were those who uh, suffered when others invaded their lands and possessed their territory. We, We share in that experience and we pray for Ukraine. Give their leaders wisdom and strength. Give their people strength and mercy. May the voices of our brothers and sisters in that nation who know you and love you, may they be willing to serve, may they be willing to stand with those who are around them and breathe into their lives the hope of the gospel. May they be those who by good works demonstrate when there is injustice in their streets, this is how believers live. This is the mercy we're willing to show because of the mercy we've received. Father, we would pray that you would be among us, and may we be a group of people who lean into you, 
who, who receive from you grace and mercy in our time of need, who know what it is to have been moved from darkness to light, and who now are willing to stand on the hope we have in Christ and to serve a community, to serve a world that is broken and in every sense of the word, uh, resistant towards you. We would pray that the gospel in our day would prevail, that it would be light in our life and it would radiate into the lives of everyone around us. And to this end, we pray for your glory, the advancement of your kingdom, and the peace of Jesus to reign. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, well, friends, um, having prayed that way, I just want to introduce this chapter that is really about justice, or the, the end of chapter 2. The first part of chapter 2, as you know, was a private miracle that was performed in a wedding of Cana of Galilee, and Jesus has led that district. He's uh, gone for a few days to his own family, and now, because it's Passover, he's made his way um, into Jerusalem, and he's come up onto the Temple Mount, and this is where we see the events of the last half of the chapter unfold. It really is about justice. It's the justice of God being demonstrated in the person and actions of Jesus. It might seem a surprise for me to say that, but I think as, we, as I do my best to unfold this passage, you'll see that this is really a miraculous event that Jesus performs in a demonstrated power of God and accomplishes justice by cleansing the temple. And we'll get more into that as, as we look at the chapter. But let me begin by saying, I think all of us in this room and all of you who are watching understand that very personal cry for justice. It's a cry that says, oh God, something needs to be done about this. Some of us may have said that to God in prayer. Some of us may have said that to each other when we've witnessed what's gone on in the Ukraine. People flooding over the border on one side to, to find safety. People coming through the border the other way to take up arms and defend their nation. And we look at it and think, this, this is Europe. This is 2022. Uh, there's conflict among NATO partners of which we're in an alliance. And we think... What, what shall we do? And we cry for justice. Some of you have a very much more personal uh, involvement and engagement in justice. When you were in your own nation, if it was Sri Lanka or uh, in parts of India, perhaps, or parts of Asia where you've been and you've recognized uh, that you haven't been given the freedom that every person should enjoy. Uh, because of your language or your culture or your background, you were denied justice. In other words, you were not given the opportunity to live freely. You were not able to pursue uh, the jobs that you wanted, the education that you wanted, to live where you wanted. You were not given justice. It was unjust, unjust. And many of you here in this room, as I gaze look at you, I realize that given your ethnicity and background, you may have suffered injustice in Canada. People may have said terrible things to you, not even necessarily understanding what they're saying, but wounded you and hurt you. There is a need for justice in our day, isn't there? Uh, we're feeling the need for that justice. We're becoming a little more aware of people around us who may have been denied justice on the basis of race or background or age or gender. 
There are so many reasons that we can mistreat and use power and control to assert ourselves and to make injustice where there ought to be justice. And we encounter some of that within this passage. And so where I want to end is to lead us to a point of how then shall we live when we're in a situation that is not just, and perhaps we ourselves as God's followers are going to be called out for that uh, or are going to be treated poorly because of that. How will we then choose to live? That's where we'll end. So let me lead you now through the process of seeing the justice of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus in this chapter. Now the reason, I'm just reminding you, the reason that this is written for us, this chapter is included by John, was because he says for us very clearly in chapter 20 verses 30 to 31 that his purpose is to include all of the things that Jesus did, all of his miracles, all of his signs, all of his power, all of the wonders of his work, including his death, resurrection, or his death, burial, and resurrection, is so that we might believe, right? Let me remind you of those words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, it's not exhaustive. It's specific about key things John wants us to see because they demonstrate, in his opinion, the powerful conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. Then he goes on and he says, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human form, and that by believing, not just intellectual assent, but this hopeful alignment, we will have life. Now that's the hope of the gospel here. That it's teaching us that it is a good news story to bring us into dynamic, personal, permanent relationship with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. So why is this story included? Because it's a Passover story, and it's the beginning of ministry of Jesus, not at the end. Now, it's possible that John, in the freedom of a writer, took something that happened at the end and put it in the beginning. I suggest not. Why not? Well, there's no disciples here, and he should have disciples. So that would conclude us, I would put me in the opinion of scholars, although I am not one, that probably it happened twice. In other words, Jesus is very concerned about the justice of God and the name and the glory of God, and he cleanses the temple at the beginning, and then he cleanses it a second time, meaning that the justice demonstrated by Jesus didn't stick. Why? Because of the brokenness of humankind, because of our sinfulness and our waywardness, because we deny the authority of God and we choose our own way, right? I mean, we all know that story because it's at work in us, isn't it? We would like to say, no, I don't know anything about that by experience. Thank you very much. I'm one of the good guys on the good side. And I go, well, are you packing yourself with you? Because if you are, you're going to be confronted, as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, things I want to do are the things I don't do. The things I do do are the things I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And the answer is Jesus the Christ, who is greater than your sin and who demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit himself, of course, in in holy triunion, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is not only loving and kind, he is patient. Lean into that this morning and say, God, thank you that you're patient with me.
Thank you. My patience with others doesn't touch your patience with me. Thank you. Right? So here is Jesus coming up to the Temple Mount, and we read those verses. I'm going to remind you, in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, doesn't say he and his disciples, again, one of those little nuances that say he was alone. He was coming up to the temple. And it says, many believed in his name, what? When they saw the signs he was doing. Now, that's an interesting thing to put at the bottom end of this work within the temple, that it was a sign. It wasn't just an event. It was demonstrating something about the person of Jesus that we would look at him and say, oh, that's who God is in human form. That's how he lives. This is what he wants. This is what he cares about. This is what he's on on mission to accomplish under the power and in the name and the authority of God his Father. It's a sign. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I was, what's the sign? Like he's going for Passover and I... Honestly, I didn't get it until we dig more deeply into it. I'm going to lead you there. I'm choosing to start at the end of the chapter because it states this surprising reason, which I'm hinting at, that the cleansing of the temple is a sign of Jesus' messianic nature, his godness in human form, his deity, as it were, that he is the God-man Jesus. What this is telling us is that Jesus did a sign that would tell us he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and we can see it clearly in his action. And this is John's purpose, is to ground our faith, but it's to do so particularly in this event. So what we read in the first place is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, and there's irony in this, who takes away the sin of the world, as chapter 1 identified him in the mouth of his cousin John, John the Baptist. So here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, entering the temple at Passover, which is a celebration of Jesus bringing Israel out of bondage and into freedom, out of darkness and into light, and out of oppression and into joyful participation in the kingdom. Uh, it's so powerful, isn't it, the picture? And he does it by what is done for them, not for what they're able to do for themselves. And the Passover lamb, as you know, is, is the last plague of all of those ten that Moses brought on Egypt. It is the death of the firstborn child. And every Jewish family would, was, was instructed to kill a lamb, a yearling without blemish or a goat, and to collect the bowl and to do what? Paint it on the lintel and the doorposts of their house, and the angel of death would pass over. We deserve to be judged, but God gives us mercy because of a life that stands in our place. That's the sacrifice. And that's Jesus. And here's the temple, maybe 1,200 years later, something like that. And they're still living out the memorial meal of the Passover. And you didn't sacrifice your lamb at home. You did it in the temple because it was a sin offering and the center of worship. So everybody comes to Jerusalem. 
And as we see him enter through one of the many wide doors onto the 35 acres of the Temple Mount, you see that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> he wanted to be there. He wanted to engage in this. He wanted to participate in the very action of remembering how God brought freedom to his people. Because he's a Jew, right? Born a Jew. Born the Messiah within the nation. To take away the sin of the Jews? Yes, but the sin of the world. So he comes and we see him enter through one of the many wide doors onto what is now Herod's great temple. He built it. He, he wasn't a, a Jewish person. He was of mixed race and ancestry. But he wanted the Jewish people to love him, so he gave them a great temple. He rebuilt it. And it was splendid. It became one of the seven wonders of the world of that time. People came just to see its splendor, paved in white stone, uh, a, a huge platform built of stacked stone and filled in with earth. And there in the center was the temple itself where atonement was made, where people could come to the mercy seat, where people could pray and seek God. Uh, this was so important to the Jewish community, but it was also the Jewish community was to be a light to the nations. It was to demonstrate God among them. And so here's the yearly event. And you can imagine some of the people are walking up to the temple and they've got a goat trailing behind them or a little lamb or they're holding it in their arms because they're going to have it sacrificed. We'll talk more about this. And you can imagine the scene in Jerusalem because all of the families are seeking to come. They might not make it every single year, although the commandment was they come. They might come in some kind of a rotation. There was a cost involved. There was inconvenience involved. You had to find a place to stay. Jerusalem itself was somewhere between 150 and 300,000 people. Estimates, and it's a little loose, we're not really sure. Josephus estimated that there were three million people in the city on this day. Now, we're not sure that's true because we have no idea where he got that number from. He doesn't tell us. He just, he just uses the number. And you know what science and, and, and those who scholars who study history go, well, if he can't defend where the number is from, maybe it just came out of the air. Uh, we don't know. But we know it was crowded. We know that every room that was available was being either rented or given to relatives. We know that people were thronging to the city. Let's imagine at this point that at least it doubled in population. So a city that could house 300,000 now is bursting with 600,000 people there. And we could imagine that not everyone is going up to the temple, but maybe one in ten is going up to get the sacrifice and to bring it home and to then roast it and eat it for the Passover meal in the evening. But still, that would mean, if we do the math, 60,000 people crowding into 35 acres of land, not all of which you can stand in because the stoya is built at one end, the royal gallery, there's, there's uh, 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 entranceways around, there's colonnades all the way around, uh, there's the, 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 the corner, the, the, the fortress of Antonia on, on one end where the Romans could look over and make sure there was peace going on in the Temple Mount, especially when there were so many crowds in Jerusalem and crowd control was an issue and there would be all kinds of things happening in the city. You can imagine it, can't you? Overcrowding and potential for all kinds of things to go on. 
And so what is it that Jesus sees when he comes up through the doors to the temple? He's been here before. You remember that. He said to uh, the leaders in the Jewish temple when he was a boy of 12 and got, you know, he was freed from his family because he wandered away. And he was found where? In the temple courts talking with the religious leaders. And he said to his parents, well, you, you knew I had to be about my father's business. He's on his father's business now. It hasn't changed. He's in the same alignment with his father as he was back then. But rather, when he's coming up to the temple, he's, he's seeing something that is surprising, something maybe new in its development since he was a boy, maybe since he was even here last. Because what was happening was that this was a convenient time for people to come to the temple and also pay their yearly tax. And they had to pay their tax in Tyrrhenian coinage, Tyrrhenian shekels, because that was the coinage of the day. People were using that broadly in the area. And if they brought Roman drachmas or if they brought a, a Greek coin, they, they couldn't be used. The temple wouldn't accept them. So they had, for the convenience of the people, money changers there taking what it was you brought and giving you the coin you needed so you could go and put it in the drop box of the offering and pay Honor to God through that process. But of course, the money changers, as I read, were charging anywhere from 10 to 12% for the convenience of having the coins you couldn't get so that you could pay a tax that you were required to pay to the temple. So money changers were there. Jesus saw that right away. What else was there? Well, you were coming from a distance and it was a bit of a nuisance to bring a lamb with you and to feed it for the few days ahead of the sacrifice and to carry it with you and to make provision for it and not all your family wanted you to have a lamb in the house or you know what I'm saying. It was all about things that were going on that made it difficult. And then what you need to know is because this was under the control of the high priest and his family and the Levites, what began to occur is the priests were seeing the animals that were being brought and were finding defect in them and saying, this isn't suitable, you can't bring this one. Can you argue in that moment in a crowded temple that this lamb's okay? No. Edict has been made, the priest has ruled. Well, if you want to go and try and take it to court, you're going to miss the Passover. So what do you do? You take your lamb, sell it for a loss, buy the lamb that has already been approved, grumble the entire time that you've just been fleeced yourself, you know what I'm saying, and then take it to the priest and go through the whole sacrificial process. So what was going on on the top? Can you imagine now the scene? There is three stages, so there are 20,000 people a minimum on the Temple Mount if, if our numbers are right. And there's cages of doves there if you were too poor to be able to have a lamb. There were money changers that were there and also telling people, you know, you're not just going to sit there quietly. You're going to say, best exchange rate. You're calling to the crowds, best lamb, best goat. You begin to hear the noise of the market in the outer court of God's temple. It's chaos. Now, not only that, there's 300 armed guards of the priest in full military regalia doing crowd control. There are lineups. There are, there are people going here and there. There's animals coming and going. And, of course, there are going to be ropes all over the ground, right? Because they've been led 
They've been tied. They've been sold. They've been bought. And what does it say? Jesus, the Lamb of God, demonstrates his power as the just judge. Because in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, he reached down and he took cords. And we go, how did the cords get there? It's a market. They're all over the ground. It's, it's now filthy. With animals who have been bought and excrement that is there and cages that are there and all kinds of junk on the floor and noise that's going on. This is no longer a house of prayer to come into the presence of God and seek him. There's no provision for the Gentiles. They actually don't care about the Gentiles. This is Passover. Only Jews could participate. But you understand what I'm saying. There's no room for anyone to seek God in a moment of reflection and quiet. It's a bazaar, a marketplace, hustle, bustle, speed, people lining up, I probably don't need to go into the details of all the work that's gone on where people had to go in lines and present their lamb and pray over its head and have its throat cut and its blood caught and passed down and then splashed against the altar and fire is burning and the smoke is there and the noise is there and the smells are there and the sounds are there and it's just chaos. Uh, because part of it was the animal had to be hung on hooks and part of the skin removed and the fatty parts, meaning the kidneys and the visceral fat had to be removed and that had to be burned and then the rest of the animal was given to the man and he would take it home, it would be roasted in a fire and it would be eaten for the setter meal. And Jesus sees all of this. So you realize what is going on is that he reaches down, he takes these cords, and he starts to make a scourge of them. This whole group of 20,000, and then the doors would be sealed, and that would all go through, the sacrifice would be offered, and the doors would open again, and another group would come in, and chaos would just escalate. And it says that he... In chapter 2, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Obviously, at the end of the line, it was the pigeon sellers that were a bit slow to get on the mark, and he spoke to them specifically. But can you imagine? the? It's crowded, right? It's crowded. And they see this, what we want to call him in the eyes of someone who don't recognize him, this crazy man? This guy who's going wild? This man who's throwing over the tables and throwing the coins into the crowd? I wonder how many people filled their pockets. You know, opportunism. And then everyone is startled, right? Is it going to be a riot? Are all the temple guards coming? Let me just remind you of what happens here, because not a single thing of riot is mentioned in the passage. There's no trampling. 20,000 men with animals. You would imagine, wouldn't you? Everybody trying to get through these narrow doors. Wouldn't there be some trampling? Wouldn't there be people pressed up against pillars and walls and people stepped on on the ground as people are trying to get out of this melee that's been caused and animals are going out the doors, right? Uh, People are carrying them out. People are dragging them out. Uh, The money changers are infuriated. They're asking for what? Uh, 
justice. This isn't right. We're doing here by the high priest's consent because the high priest was in charge of all of this. He had allowed the money changers, the animal sellers, all to be part of the scene. People were losing big money this day. People would be pretty angry, right? Not a single trampling. No one was arrested. No one was wounded. They all seemed to exit the temple with remarkable speed and agility. It was vacant. Do you imagine you hear some silence right now? I look at this scene and suddenly I realize why it's a sign. Because Jesus isn't angry with the people. He's angry with the way the system has been polluted. He doesn't attack a single person. Uh, He probably makes the money changers think he's going to. He's serious about getting them out. But there isn't a single attack against another person, either by Jesus or by the 300 guards or by the citizens or by the other priests or by anyone. They all leave. I like to capture this scene as the irresistible power of God. They just go and go quickly, dramatically, demonstrating the just power of God. It's a compelling scene. It's a mark of the Lamb, but it's also a mark of the judge who cares that all that God wants done is going to be done. He wants the greatness of God to be known. Jesus wants his holiness to be understood. He wants his mercy to be prized and honored. He wants his father's house to be respected. And this is why, at this point, John quotes a very interesting text. He goes back into the Old Testament, and it's one of David's psalms, Psalm 69. You could turn to it now or read it later. But in verses 6 to 9, what David basically says is, I'm pretty much on my own serving you right now. Uh, People hate me. They hate me because they actually hate you. And as I stand for you and justice and for what your rule and your reign is, they're coming after me because they really are defying you. And then he uses that very interesting phrase. It is, the, it is your house, right? And my desire to honor you that is consuming me. Because it would be very easy to look at what Jesus has just done and say, oh, is Jesus ever passionate? Like, he's on fire, man. And we would be wrong. Because what it's really saying is, I am going to take whatever people direct towards you, Father, because I have come to honor you. Do you see what he's saying? He is the lamb who knows at this very moment as he cares about the temple being honored that people are going to come after him. Now, why? Uh, Just because he cleared the deck? Well, he also pointed out the mockery of the temple. It's a marketplace. And people are now losing their income. 
We get a little bit riled, don't we, when money that we anticipated is coming in is denied us. And and so what we're seeing is that that Jesus is saying at this point that that it is for your sake that I've become a reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That's literally true because at this point his mother and sons don't believe in him, as John has already remarked. For zeal of your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now that's the Lamb of God. But it's also the Lamb of God who is willing to act justly and demonstrate the power of God against the mess of what's become in the temple, and he will take the consequences. He's prepared. That's what the disciples know. And that's why they believe in him. Because he is not living to escape the cross. He is living in the shadow of the cross. He he is going to it not running away from it. And he is going to do whatever God wants done, even though people are going to crucify him because of the passion he has for God's nature and presence. Isn't that powerful? He's not running away saying, God, spare me. He's running to it saying, God, take me. Because I would rather die for you than live another day. That's the zeal. That's how he's choosing the cross. It's not second. People don't gang up on him and then get rid of him at the end because he can't be the king. He chose the cross. It's all directed to the cross. And here's a demonstration of the justice of God that is going to level sin at the expense of what? His own son so that mercy can be given instead of judgment. But mark this. Judgment will come. Judgment will come. And so you see the next few verses when, Jesus, when the leaders of Jesus come to him after the temple is emptied. You know what they do? You, can you imagine this scene? They're gathering around him. They're in a circle. Their arms are crossed. They're ticked. On what sign and authority have you dared to do this on the Passover feast in Jerusalem? Tell us. Where's your authority from? They're mad. This is not a a really, oh, would you kind of enlighten us? They're ticked. That's how we need to see it. And Jesus, characteristically, as we'll see in the rest of the Gospels, doesn't answer them in a way they think. He says, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What's he talking about? Himself. Why? Because the zeal of his house has consumed him, but it will not destroy him. Isn't that powerful? That's what the disciples remember afterwards. You chose the cross. You went there, and it didn't hold you. You won. That's what they're remembering. They don't get it. The leaders look at him and go, "Mm, what are you saying? It took 46 years to build. Uh, They might have been embellishing it a bit. You know, we're not really sure. Uh, There's debate about how long Herod built. doesn't matter. The point is that they misunderstood what Jesus said and said, do you think you you can do that? (laughs) We're going, buddy, I want to say count on it. You don't know who this is. Right? We know they didn't get it. 
that was fascinating because they wanted yet another sign. What did he give them as a sign of proof? He gave them the sign of the resurrection. When you see me dead and see me alive, you will know I have come in the power and authority of my father. But not right now. He doesn't add that, but, but that's his intent. And so that's John's purpose, is to show us the Lamb of God about his Father's business so that we will believe in him and have life, because only Jesus can do this for us. So here we are, church family. We're friends. Jesus is the Lamb, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And he's establishing justice, and he's saying, this is how my Father's temple ought to be treated, but understand, it's a passing temple It's not going to be here come 70 AD. It's going to be destroyed by the Romans. It's not been rebuilt for thousands of years later. It never needs to be rebuilt again, in my opinion of the gospel and what we read in the epistles. However, what Jesus says is, there's another temple here. You destroy it. Watch, Watch what God's going to do to that one. Because you know when we come to church, this isn't God's house, is it? I mean, we use that language because we want to be respectful of our gathering place. I get that, but what is the habitation of God right now? Yeah, it's us. It, truly, we bring God with us, if you, if you want to be clear, because he never leaves you, never forsakes you, and his spirit is implanted in you, and we come into this place, we say, God, you're among us. Why? Because you're in us. Uh, truly is the language of the New Testament. You abide in us forever. And one day we will awaken in the newness of life and be as you've always intended. Right? So many things will pass away. All things will become new. A new body is being prepared for us. And the same spirit will lead us into life. Oh, it's such a tremendous promise. Because God has justly dealt with sin. But there is also, as we understand, an intermediate form of justice that we, lead, that we lean into. Because the disciples at this point didn't really know Jesus as he was or see him as he was wanting them to see him as a, as a Messiah who will deliver not only mercy, but he's also going to bring the justice of God into our world. And Peter camps on this, and he uses a very few very interesting lines in, in chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. I want to end there because he applies the gospel to our lives in, in the process. And if you want to just turn there for a moment, I, I, I'm going to end with these verses. I didn't prepare a slide for it. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, and my preaching Bible isn't the ESV. You'll pardon if it's a little different from what you're reading. But I'm going to break into it and says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, hmm, interesting term, if you suffer, right? If you receive injustice, in other words, as a Christian, if you're treated badly for the name of the gospel is what it means, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. In other words, God so cares about his name in us that he will discipline us. Is that true? It's absolutely true. Hebrews chapter 12 says that if we're not disciplined by God, we should actually think we don't belong to the family. He cares about us. He cares about his name in us. 
So that's what Paul or Peter lands on. And then he says, if it begins with us, what will the outcome be with those who do not obey the gospel of God? He just reminds us that people are going to treat us like they treated Jesus, right? And when that happens, we should say we've been found faithful. Thank you. Give me strength to endure this. Give me power, I can't write it. Allow me to trust that you will bring to light what is hidden, that you will bring justice where I'm now denied it. And he will. And keep on keeping on. Because he is the Lamb of God who demonstrates the justice of God. And who demonstrates as the Lamb, he does not want to judge, but to redeem. But if we refuse his correction, if we refuse his mercy, if we do not accept his justice, there is no alternative but for God to render to us the justice he would rather have his son bear. And that will be awful. Eternal separation from the God of grace. I hope as you've gone through this that you've seen Jesus in maybe a fresh way or been reminded of who he is as a means of encouragement and strength for you. That when you face difficulties in the name of Jesus, you can say, wow, this was really tough. But it doesn't touch what you suffered for me. Thank you for being my savior. Thank you for the cross. Give me strength, right? And as we're praying for justice and saying, God, you need to do something about this, we need to say, oh yes, God, you do need to deal with all of these atrocities, but oh God of justice, please have mercy. Please show grace. In conflict, please bring salvation. Thank you, Father, for giving us your truth. Thank you for enabling us to see your son, Jesus, live it out so powerfully, effectively. Allow us to lean in to the truth of your word and receive its strength and live in its light. That we might glorify you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.